In their second World Cup qualifiers this window, the men's national teams of Mexico, the United States, and Canada will bring to close an important year which has brought difficulties and challenges to each team. Paul Tenorio, Joshua Cloak, and Felipe Cardenas are here to tell you what to watch for in those qualifiers tonight. I'm Alex Abnos, and this is Soccer Every Day for Tuesday, November 16th. All right, joining the show again from Edmonton, Joshua Cloak. Uh, Josh, you were in the stands uh, for Canada's win over Costa Rica in the previous game, and you'll be there tonight against uh, for the game against Mexico. What did Canada get right in that victory against Costa Rica, and do you think the same approach will work against Mexico tonight? I think what they got right was their ability to just stay patient. Um, that first 45 minutes from them wasn't particularly, you know, aesthetically pleasing. I think they were just trying to kind of grind through the result. And to me, what what really hurt the team early on was a lack of, of um, a lack of presence in the central midfield. You know, a lot of times it was. Stefan Estacchio kind of sometimes having to move from the back line into the central midfield and send long balls deep. Uh, Mark Anthony Kay didn't have his best game in the central midfield. And that was it. When you play a 4-2-4, that's kind of what that's, that's what I think they looked like in, in, in attack. And, and you leave yourself kind of exposed in the middle. Um, but Herdman's belief, I think, was that by just overloading the front, they'll eventually get some opportunities, which they did. Jonathan David just kind of capitalized on a, a loose ball. We've seen uh, this Canada team over World Cup qualifying kind of change tactics on a dime. And I really thought that was going to happen, you know, at half. Um, it didn't. So I guess, you know, they deserve credit for just sticking with it because Costa Rica really didn't offer much on the day. Um, their belief was just that eventually they would find a goal with that much talent up front. Um, whether that'll work against Mexico, I don't see how it could. I think Herdman has to go with a much more balanced, you know, I would imagine something more of a 4-3-3 with Jonathan Osorio in there, who, you know, it does very well in possession and has a lot of experience playing against Mexico. Um because with the quality that Mexico has, especially in the midfield, they'll be able to, even if they're not playing their best football right now, I, they'll be able to pick apart Canada in the center of the pitch. Because, again, the way they played against Costa Rica worked on the day, but certainly wouldn't work against teams with with much more quality. Well, they were able to get a result, Canada was, uh, away from home at, at the Azteca against Mexico. As I recall, they played very much a, a, a counterattack sort of sort of based uh, a game in that in that particular matchup. Do you think that they'll take a similar approach, even though they're playing this one at home in what is, you know, I'm sure plenty is going to be said about the weather up there in Edmonton and how Mexico's going to deal with it? Or do you think they're going to be a little bit more aggressive this time, this time around? Yeah, I for one, I don't know why. Maybe it's just we were joking about this on Slack the other day. I don't mind the cold. I kind of like the cold so i'm kind of sick of talking about the the cold but well, that's why i'm not asking you specifically about it but it is it is a thing <laughs> i i don't see how you can play kind of brazen football in these conditions the pitch is terrible the pitch is is hard and, and really doesn't um 
it doesn't liken itself to, to playing the kind of football that Canada wants to play, which is being in possession and, and, and going after the game. I, I think it's going to be a really scrappy affair. So to your, your point, yeah, I, I can imagine them maybe not going for it early on, having a bit of a, a, a deeper line um, and then hoping my, my bet and kind of what I've seen from training and, and what I've kind of gathered from players is, they're going to rely on their depth come 65, 70 minutes. Um, I, I will, I'd be surprised to see Kyle Laren start. Um, I think he's a really, really good option off the bench. And, and the game did change a bit when he was brought off uh, for Liam Millars in, against Costa Rica. So I think if you can kind of play a little bit of rope-a-dope, manage the conditions against uh, Mexico and, and keep things really, really tight and, and then hope that, at 65, 70 minutes, you can bring on one of your horses and, and really change things. Um, because I, again, I don't think it's, they're expecting, and this is the the token weather talk, they're expecting 15 centimeters of snow overnight, Monday night. Um, training was moved from Commonwealth Stadium indoors to a dome. Uh, we're about to head about half an hour outside of town to a strange soccer dome and, and, you know, watch a team on the precipice of a World Cup berth uh, train there. Um, so, yeah, managing the conditions is going to be important. And then I think, you know, the, again, I, I wouldn't be surprised for them to, to try and go after a very similar 1-0 result with with a goal late. This Canada team, as you mentioned, is is very close to qualifying for a World Cup. Then They're in a great position, kind of regardless of, w- of what happens uh, tonight against Mexico. Um, this is very unusual for, for Canadian soccer. Uh, yes. to say the least, uh, and a big part of why this team has done so well and why they're seen so differently um, or as so special and 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 new and different is because of a player a couple people might have heard of called Alfonso Davies. He, in these, in these uh, couple games, is playing in his hometown, well, his adopted hometown of uh, Edmonton. Um, you di- did a story on him that should be up by the time listeners are listening to this, and if it's not, it'll be up very soon <laughs> um, about Alfonso Davies and his return to his hometown. What have you found out just in sort of talking to people in Edmonton about Davies and sort of his, his impact on, uh, on the city of Edmonton? You know, when we talk about Alfonso Davies, we, we often very talk, very often talk about how he could change the face of the game in Canada. And, you know, it will have more and more people, you know, scouts from abroad looking at Canadian players. Um, and again, Alfonso Davies has been very vocal about the fact that he wants to change the perception of Canadian soccer abroad. But what I found is that his impact is, is in you know, all of that is probably true, but his impact in, in Edmonton is so much more micro. And people are literally looking at him and saying, is this could this be a soccer town? Could Edmonton, a town that is um, a notoriously hockey first town? I mean, the Edmonton Oilers are, you know, they have this incredible new, beautiful arena, and they have the best player in the game in Connor McDavid. And it's they have a history of winning championships in the 80s. Um, it's again, it's a hockey town, but I think more and more people are looking at the fact that. Edmonton is changing as a city. Immigration continues to rise in the city. And the, the very face of Edmonton, which was once a kind of a, a conservative, cold place, is becoming this really vibrant, multicultural city, very much reflective of Canada as a whole. And I think there's uh, the soccer influence throughout 
Edmonton is really, really growing. Um, and you're seeing that, you know, Alfonso Davies is the ambassador of a, a, a growing um, football academy here, B2B. Um, and there's players that are going from that academy on trials in Europe and on trials with, with national teams abroad. Um, so Edmonton is, is very much a melting pot. And with that comes a lot of soccer influence from around the world. And I think what people see in Alfonso Davies' story is a, kind of a comfort to act outside the norm and not feel like you have to play hockey because you are in Edmonton, because you're in Canada. And I think that's really inspiring. I had a chat with the mayor of Edmonton. Um, who There's a lot of parallels between his experience. He was just elected uh, mayor in October. He's the first mayor uh, that is a person of color in Edmonton. Um, and, and he himself finds Alfonso Davies' journey and story inspiring because what this mayor is trying to do is provide a lot more social programs for people in need in Edmonton That's and, and create a lot of anti-hate and anti-racism campaigns, all of which um, were very closely tied to Alfonso Davies, who got his start playing free footy, which is a free kind of government-sponsored after-school program that gets kids into soccer. So I, I do think that, that they're not people around Edmonton are not treating Alfonso Davies story as a one-off. I think they see it as particularly inspiring and look, you walk around Edmonton, you can see his face everywhere. Um, which I think 10 years ago, if you were to say a face of a Canadian soccer player would be anywhere on billboards in Canada would be pretty remarkable. So it definitely feels like change is coming um, with, with Canadian soccer. And, and I think these games in Edmonton are an important kind of showcase of that. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the coming years and more on a short term tonight against Mexico. Josh, I know you'll be there. Enjoy the game and we'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Thanks. Felipe Cardenas, thanks for coming on the show. You were in Cincinnati for the United States 2-0 win over Mexico in World Cup qualifying on Friday. They returned to action today against Canada. Uh, that loss to the U.S., the third one in kind of a major competitive game uh, in this year, in, in a single calendar year. What went wrong this time for Mexico against the United States? And what do you think needs to change tonight if they're going to get a result against Canada? I think what went wrong for Mexico, it, it, it also the second half was just sort of, I mean, without being too harsh, honestly, it was it was a failure, a failure by by the Mexicans. Everything, everyone from the players, the game plan, and, and, and Tata Martino, like the the buttons that he pushed, just weren't the right ones. But after a good thirty to thirty five minutes in the first half, you know, Mexico were playing well. They had their chances. They should have finished both chances. Uh, that, you know, Chucky Lozano had that breakaway that, that just resulted in a great save from Zach Steffen. Uh, later, Lozano set up uh, Tecatito Corona on a platter, which should have should have been at least a shot on target that did not uh, transpire. They couldn't fire Raul Jimenez. And, and in the end, you know, after talking to some people you know, close to Martino and, and, and people in Mexico over the weekend, they boiled it down to just like, physically the u.s were were better and it's not about being fit they were just like they were faster they were more committed they won more duels 
you can go to any stat and the, the, the Americans really just dominated in that second ball game. Uh, any second ball in the second half, they were all over. And so I think in, 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 in what went wrong for Mexico is, is this failure to recognize in the second half that it was going badly. You know, first 10 minutes, you could see it already. Uh, and Tata waited until I think the 75th minute to start making changes. And, and the changes were too late. Uh, they didn't really change anything for Mexico. And, and, and that, was the, that was the story of the night in Cincinnati. Uh, they, they were just outplayed in, in that second 45 minutes. And, and now, you know, I think you can look at this game against Canada and, and see a very similar sort of team in the U.S., one that wants to get after you. They want to they press. They want to get high. They want to beat you on the wings. And, and that's going to be a problem for Mexico if they can't handle 90 minutes of that sort of matchup. You mentioned a lot of tactical things just now, but I think I think it's interesting that what you wrote about in the immediate aftermath of the game uh, against the U.S. was the sort of mental component of this. Uh, the Mexicans basically didn't match the United States intensity uh, as you it was kind of your conclusion after watching the game. You've now rewatched the game, at least some of the first half anyway. <laughs> I don't know if you're all the way through, but um, do you still think that that's a primary factor or was this mostly sort of a tactical issue that, that, that needs to be resolved? Cause it seems like if, it, if we're talking like a, a, a mental, a mental thing that needs to be solved, that's a little bit tougher to change between two games in a qualifying window. Right. And, and remember on Wednesday of last week, I had a 10 minute conversation with Tata Martino, knowing that they were playing this like very important third consecutive game against the U S in a calendar year. And I asked him how he was going to manage the psyche of his players in such an emotional game. And he told me that it's not up to the coaches to do that. You know, that, 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 that is on the players. They know that it's an important game. They know it's a classic go. They know that emotions will be high. They need to manage that. I thought in the first 35, they did. Uh, in, intensity is also a word that even Mexico reporters after the game were like, what does that mean? Like, how can players lose intensity? How can players not be intense in a crucial World Cup qualifier. Uh, and that is the story, though. Uh, the U.S. were just that much better from an emotional standpoint. They managed it better than the than Mexico. They were consistent in how they tackled and how they ran and how they pressed and how they even came back and covered for their for the back line. You know, Miles and, and Zimmerman were good. Zimmerman was was almost great in that in that game and in, in how he was winning every duel, winning every header, uh, and cleaning up for for Yedlin if he got out of position. And and Mexico just couldn't match up. They couldn't raise their intensity level. And and listen, like in these sort of games, like I think over more than tactics, a lot of times it comes down to this. Tactically, I also think the U.S. were better in their press. Uh, they, they, they managed to, to move Jimenez to the sidelines and make him a non-factor in a lot of the games. So it's, it's a thing that I've heard since I started covering Mexico, the Mexican players' mentality. Is it strong enough in big games? Is it strong enough against when they are the target of so many of their counterparts in CONCACAF? And now we're seeing this the teams from the, U, the U.S. players' making t-shirts, Burhalter publicly talking about a lack of respect. You've got Herdman in Mexico, or I'm sorry, Canada's head coach Herdman saying that we, we're not, we're not frightened of Mexico anymore. It's like, there's this thing bubbling in CONCACAF where teams want to take Mexico out. And I'm not saying that's new, but it is certainly something that Mexico has to embrace 
and play through. And so far, it hasn't happened. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. What has the reaction been in the Mexican press to this loss? Uh, I would have gathered that it's <laughs> it's not great, um, but I am also seeing people pay, maybe potentially speculating that Tata Martino's job could be on the line in these next few games. Do you get that impression? And uh, what would need to happen for that actually to be the case? I feel like with Mexico is currently in second in World Cup qualifying position, he's probably not going to lose his job, even though he lost the U.S. again. But uh, what, what's 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 the what's the mood been like there? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Mexico national team coaches have lost their job during qualifying several. Uh, they were in a position like where Mexico is today, where they were up until Friday night, they were leading the, the octagonal. They were 14 points, clearly on a clear path to get to, to Qatar. Uh, they lose this game and now they're they're still tied in points, but they're second to the United States in goal differential. I mean, that that is not a crisis, uh, but the the sort of losing this the reputation as CONCACAF's top team as the way they like to say el gigante the CONCACAF the, the giant of CONCACAF you know that was some of the reaction from the print media I feel like print media in Mexico was like much more accepting of what's going on we are no longer the top dog it is clearly the, the U.S. who have beaten us three times in a row including a gold cup final Okay, uh, that is a trophy that is important to every Mexico national team coach. Uh, the word papelon, papelon is like just like a debacle, basically. That was thrown out there. Uh, father and son, referring to the U.S. being Mexico's daddy, basically. <laughs> you know that was that was a headline, essentially. Yeah, um, we are their sons was was another headline. Uh, so they they went they went the Mexican press went to that extreme to accept the reality that the U.S. is dominating them in in, in games that matter. And for for Tata Martino, I feel like his job was like on the line since the, the first day he took it. He wasn't well received by a lot of the Mexico press because he's a foreign coach. They had just come off. Uh, Juan Carlos Osorio, another foreign coach, a Colombian coach who was very controversial in how he managed the team and how he rotated the team. Uh, but Osorio did some nice things too. He, he played a lot of young players in that World yeah. Cup. Start, he sort of started that trend of getting the younger Mexican players to, to be in big positions for the national team. And Tata has sort of reversed that in, in opting for experience. Obviously, some of those players that Osorio brought up are now more experienced players, but Mexico is a more experienced team. And so they, they look at, they, they, they're highlighting things that Tata said as well. In the post-game presser, he was actually asked by the Washington Post, Stephen Goff, what is it like now? What do you think about losing three times to the U.S.? And he said, I don't take this personally. Like, this isn't a personal thing between me and the United States. Uh, that was a headline 
you know, in, in Mexico, the Dos Acero was a big headline, you know, it's sure. like, they understand that that's, that means something to American soccer. And so I feel like there's the, the pressure that's on Tata is like the snowball effect of these, these things that just continue to happen, losing to the U S three times, which I think will just tarnish his reputation uh, in Mexico for that. Like, I think he could get them to a semifinal and perhaps they'll forget this, at a yeah. world cup, but, but still it's like, you, you can't lose to the U S that many times. So it, it is something that is, is bubbling and it's this black cloud that's hanging over Mexico right now. Uh, that has been, it's been there since the summer. They haven't been able to play through that. The notion that they're no longer dominating teams and especially no longer dominating the U S. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. Felipe, thanks for joining the show. Anytime Alex. Okay, I have here with me Paul Tenorio. Uh, Paul, you are in Kingston with the U.S. national team, and you were appearing on this show for the first time, so it's good to have you here. Uh, You and Sam and Felipe uh, were all in Cincinnati for the United States 2-0 win over Mexico in the last qualifier, and you went over it in depth on allocation disorder, so anybody that wants to hear some analysis from that game should listen to that show. For this show, for this segment, I want to look forward to tonight's game against Jamaica, uh, first of all, uh, you've been with the U.S. pretty much throughout this whole process. Uh, what is the mood in camp like right now? First of all, as they say, Alex, you saved the best for last. So I'm glad to have waited <laughs> to this point um, or for you, you to save me for this point. Um, they do say that. Um, <laughs> it's true. No, I, I think the mood around this team is a positive one right now. Um, you can tell the guys are in a good mood and understandably so. They're coming off of a a dominant victory over their biggest rivals. They played some of the best soccer that this team has ever played. I think um, really in recent memory, not only under Greg Berhalter, but I think going back before that as well, it's been a while since we've seen a U.S. team control a game against a good opponent the way they did against Mexico. Um, And, you know, Greg Berhalter talked about it. He talked about the fact that that they're in a good mood, Um, But, you know, they also understand that the focus can no longer be on the thing that put them in a good mood. It's not about Mexico anymore. Um, It's about Jamaica. And they understand that. And and that'll be the next big test for this team because they they didn't pass that test last month Um, coming off of a two nothing win over Jamaica where they played good soccer. They they were really flat on the road against Panama and lost that game one nothing. And what Greg Berhalter said today, which I thought was a good way to think about it, is he had said to the team before Mexico, Yes, we want to beat Mexico. They're our rival. But we have bigger goals than that. We have a bigger task at hand. That's getting to the World Cup. And beating Mexico got us closer to that goal, but beating Jamaica will get us even closer. And, and that was kind of how he phrased it at the team, is, is now we have to kind of reset and focus and recognize that a win on the road in Jamaica gets you one step closer to Qatar. Well, uh, as we know in CONCACAF qualifying, the conditions of playing away so often can play a role in in these games. We've seen it in this cycle. We see it in really every cycle uh, that the U.S. plays in. Uh, You just came from U.S. training at uh, at the office at the National Stadium in in Kingston. Uh, What are the conditions like there? What's the weather going to be like? Is the field in good, good condition? You know, all these things that people worry about with CONCACAF venues. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tough to tell really, really decisively whether the field's in good shape or bad shape from where we are sitting in the stands. But I, I always try to get a feel for how the ball's moving. 
Um, I, I did see there was a point where Greg Berhalter and Tyler Adams were playing one touch back and forth from maybe 20 yards apart. And, you know, the ball was popping up a few times and it, it seemed like in their um, the quick drills that the team was doing that we were there for that the ball was was sticking a little bit, that the the, the ball wasn't moving really quickly. Um Probably a few reasons for that. One, they hadn't watered the pitch before training. I don't know if they intend to water it before the game or not. I mean, a team, home team will choose whether or not to do that. Um, but the grass was yeah. definitely a little bit thicker and it was a little bit stickier. And so if that's the case, I think we'll see a different approach to the game tomorrow from the U.S. And I think it'll have an impact on the lineup that Greg Berhalter chooses. Um, I think you pick certain players based on kind of the way you want to play the game. Um Looking at the weather report, it's going to be hot. Um, they come, they're coming from Cincinnati where it was 30 degrees. Here it's 90. So you're talking about a 60-degree swing in temperature that you're playing in. Um, they Jeez. are calling for rain in the afternoon tomorrow. It's a 5 p.m. kickoff. We think there might be rain around 2. So we'll wait and see. I mean, I lived in Florida long enough to know that Sometimes it says rain and it doesn't happen. Sometimes a thunderstorm comes in for five minutes and it's nothing that really impacts the pitch or anything like that. I think rain would probably be a good thing if it happened during the game for the U.S. It might cool things down a little bit and it might make the surface a little bit quicker. Um, but still TBD on on exactly what the weather is going to be tomorrow, except for it will be it will be hot. Uh, no fans in, in the stands for this game. Is that is that still the case? Uh, they're going to have 5,000 fans in the stands. Um, oh, they are. Okay. 5,000 fully vaccinated fans. It'll be an odd atmosphere, I think, because of that. You know, it'll be nice yeah. to have fans in the stands, but it'll it's a it's a decent sized stadium. So to have only 5,000 fans, I think it changes the environment. I mean, I think certainly we know that no fans in the stands it's it's hard it's up to the players to motivate themselves i think even 5000 fans will help to to drive jamaica a little bit more but i don't think it's going to be anything like intimidating for the us i don't think that factor will be there the way it has been in el salvador and honduras and panama and and i really do look back at the panama game and think that you know the us came out flat against panama and what it did was it put belief into the fans in the stands because yeah. as Panama started to play confidently and get an opportunity here or there and the U.S. was struggling, you could feel the belief in the crowd building. All of a sudden, they went from thinking they had no chance to suddenly believing they could win. And the, the buzz and the energy in the stadium actually lifted. You know, you could feel it building over 15 to 20 minutes. And that transmitted to the team itself. I don't think there will be as much of that element and so there is going to be some of that battle of can you motivate yourself? Can you get yourself up for a game coming off of an incredible atmosphere in Cincinnati against your biggest rivals? Well, on the field, uh, a mark of previous windows and a constant talking point uh, from Greg Berhalter. And as a result, every, all, all of us, all the media is the heavy rotation that the U.S. has been uh, using between all these games because you're looking at three game windows and short rest between those games. That is not the case in this window. It's only two games and uh, an adequate amount of rest between those games, uh, I'd say. So should we expect to see you know much less rotation than we have been between games? And where are the spots where we might see some different names compared with the starting 11 and maybe some of the subs that were out there in Cincinnati. Yeah, it's a bit unfair to, to compare between Jamaica to Panama and now Mexico to Jamaica, in part because it was almost a completely different team that took the field in Panama than the <laughs> one that took the field in Austin. Seven different changes to that lineup. 
Um, and that won't be the case here because this is a, a normal two game window of which there's only one in this qualification cycle. And historically, that's yeah. how every window has been. And so you will not see the type of squad rotation that we've seen. In fact, we think there's probably only going to be two or maybe three changes to the lineup from the team that took the field against Mexico. And those are being forced. Weston McKinney is out due to a yellow card suspension. Miles um, Robinson is out due to a red card suspension. Both of them had the same infraction. Miles Robinson received two yellow cards. Weston McKinney received two yellow cards. The difference is Miles Robinson received both of his yellow cards inside of 90 minutes and Weston McKinney received both of his yellow cards across seven games played. Um, thus, uh, we see the rules of CONCACAF here. Any two yellow cards across the 14-game qualification window uh, cycle will get you a suspension, which is just totally nuts to me. Um, so, the, so the three questions that we, Sam States, when I see going into tomorrow's games are who will replace Miles Robinson? You know, you have Chris Richards and Mark, Mark McKenzie as the two options there. Uh, who will replace Weston McKinney? Gianluca Busio is an option. Sebastian Legette and Kellen Acosta. And the last is, will Christian Pulisic start? And Greg Berhalter certainly left the door open for that possibility. I feel like I'm pretty good at reading between the lines with Greg Berhalter at press conferences. I think Christian Pulisic will start against Jamaica. That's my gut feeling based on the, the vague answer that was given by Berhalter today. Well, it's a it's a lot to look forward to and a lot to uh, to take in for this game. Uh, Paul, I'm looking forward to reading your coverage and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. The United States takes on Jamaica today at 5 p.m. Eastern on Paramount Plus. Canada hosts Mexico later tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, also on Paramount Plus in Spanish on Telemundo and in Canada on Sportsnet. Elsewhere in soccer today, there's more World Cup qualifying than you could possibly watch from all over the world, but I'm going to try to pick out a few games for you. Asian qualifying gets started early in the morning on Paramount+, Plus, but the best game of the day there is probably Japan versus Oman at 11 a.m. Eastern. Those two are right next to each other in their qualification group. Japan needs points to keep up with Saudi Arabia and Australia. Uh, Africa, really a lot of action there today. Two potential upsets to watch. The first is Algeria versus Burkina Faso at 11 a.m. on ESPN+. Plus. If Burkina Faso gets the upset and wins that game, they'll advance to the next round, and Algeria will go home. There will be no World Cup for Algeria in that case. Any other result, and Algeria moves on to the next round of qualifying in Africa. It's a similar situation at the same time, 11 Eastern a.m., uh, with Nigeria versus the Cape Verde Islands. If Cape Verde wins, they go on. If Nigeria wins or draws, they advance. That's also at 11 a.m. on ESPN+. Things get a little messy at 2 p.m. in Group B in Africa, where three teams could win the group and move on. Uh, this is a little complicated to run through, but basically Tunisia needs to win against Zambia and maintain their goal difference lead over Equatorial Guinea. Equatorial Guinea, meanwhile, will be hoping to absolutely destroy poor Mauritania. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Potential for some wild stuff there. That happens at 2 p.m. on ESPN+. Moving on to Europe, all the games start today at 2.45 p.m. Eastern, all on ESPN+. Pay attention to the Group G games. Netherlands, Turkey, and Norway, all in contention to advance either automatically or to make the playoffs. The Netherlands is hosting Norway, importantly. That's probably the pick of the afternoon if you're only going to watch one game. There are a lot of scenarios there that I can't really run through efficiently here, but just trust me, that's the group to watch. In South America, the big one, Brazil versus Argentina. Argentina will qualify with a win. 
This will be in Argentina. Messi will start, and Neymar is out with a thigh injury. Should be a good one. That and all South American qualifiers are on Fubo TV in the United States. Brazil versus Argentina is on at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. You got all that? I hope so. The show is produced by Mike Zimmerman with help from John Hayes. You can get ad-free versions of the show by subscribing to The Athletic, and you can get 33% off a year subscription by going to theathletic.com slash soccer every day. Thanks for listening, and happy soccer to you all.